Welcome back to the New Levels Coaching Podcast. I'm delighted to have a new guest who's making his debut on the New Levels Coaching Podcast this week. Remember, we are the Endurance Podcast who brings the endurance world lots of coaching, inspiration and education. I'm back in colder climates after a visit to Trans Gran Canaria. And this podcast this week is all about warmer climates, how we potentially train in that warmer weather, how performance slightly changes when it's hotter, and also what strategies we could potentially be looking at to help improve your performance in the heat. That leads me on to Doug, who is the guest for this week. Uh, Doug and I have met virtually numerous occasions because we've been in touch over the weekend when I was out in trans, but I've also uh, been doing Doug's research studies or been part of those research studies. Doug, uh, I'm right in saying, Doug, you have an MSc from Stirling, is that right? Stirling University? Yeah, that's correct. So I did the uh, performance coaching uh, masters at Stirling University, which is a two-year remote, 100% online masters in performance coaching with coaches from all disciplines, from basketball, tennis, swimming, American football, all kinds of different sports there. And I was there to try and, uh, and learn more about performance coaching. Perfect. And and, and that then led you to, to Loughborough, which is where we have met now at, at Loughborough University. So you're now studying a PhD. And again, that's more to do with remote coaching, I believe, and, and looking and exploring that remote coaching setting. Yeah, correct. So I guess similar to yourself, I do remote coaching with endurance runners. And so I did the master's, really enjoyed that. It was kind of eye-opening, the content. And then I was looking for the next opportunity. And so I contacted Professor Sophia Jowett, who's kind of the world leading expert on coach-athlete relationships. And I put together a PhD proposal to her for her to supervise me around investigating the coach-athlete relationship in the remote online setting with endurance coaches. So I'm about halfway through. How many years is that? Three years. <laughs> halfway through time-wise. Time-wise. Progress-wise, we'll see. But yeah. <laughs> I always find that fascinating when people call it. Yeah, I'm halfway through my PhD. How long have you been going? Three, four years. Wow. It shows, I think it shows the dedication to the research, though, and the, and the literature that's published. A lot of people read this literature that eventually comes out and... Um, they sometimes don't realise how much blood, sweat and tears has gone in behind the scenes to, to get that published. I know you've had some research already published, which is great, which I've, I've read about online. Yeah, so my master's dissertation, we're lucky enough to get that published, exploring the role of the coach when working with ultra runners with relative energy deficiency in sport. So that came out last year, which was quite nice. And again, that was a good learning experience, trying to get things published and what you originally write after it's been reviewed and changed and things and getting it kind of journal ready versus the original manuscript can be quite different. So I bet. Yeah, I bet. Well, I'll put a link to that article or uh, well, that journal article in the show notes because I think it's, it's a really good read for, for people, not just coaches. I think it's a really good read for people in general. But I know I had a quick look at that article and looked at the findings of it and it's, it's fascinating. So looking at Reds and, and particularly that coach-athlete relationship, yeah. which I think, you know, People are quite open about that. That's sometimes a struggle for, for people to be open and honest about that. So, yeah, some fascinating research done. And then our, our paths of crossing the coaching world, as, as you said, yep. you are the, the founder of a, a very multidimensional team with the elite trail team that you've brought together a real core group of experts. And if, if anybody gets a chance to have a look on the website, um, the ETT website, I think it's fascinating the people who are involved in that team 
And that team are now looking after a group of athletes who are at the top end of the sport. And at the weekend, I was watching some of them on the course and, and feeding back to you via WhatsApp as to what was going on. And I can imagine you were biting your nails at home and following the dots on the trackers, which we all do as coaches. Um, but yeah, just, just share with us a little bit more about that team and, and how that came to fruition. Yeah, so I was working with a number of elite ultra runners and we had some really like great success in terms of we had a top 10 at UTMB, um, top two at Lavaredo, some of these big races, win at 100 miles of Istria, Golden Trail Series champions in terms of the UK and things like that. And I was thinking there must be more support that I can offer these these runners. And so I started speaking to a sports psychologist, speaking to a dietitian, and then thought looking at the professional cycling model where a lot of the athletes train remotely, they come together to race, which is obviously different from an individual sport like trail and ultra running. And but other than that kind of that support system. So yeah, I wanted to create a multidisciplinary support team to support the runners. So we're trying to look at all areas of performance from biomechanics got physiotherapists involved, um, who I hope that we don't have to use very often. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that nutrition, sleep expert, because again, not just for travel, but you mentioned uh, Grand Canaria. One of my runners was away for a wedding in Bangladesh the week oh, wow. before. So we had a jet lag strategy for going there and then coming back. Um, so little things like that. And it's just trying to provide as much support for the athletes because a lot of these guys at the top end have trained for years. The gains that I can maybe get from a training plan will be minimal. So, but there's lots of little opportunities and it's trying to provide that support for them. So that's where it came from. And then the other aspect was just trying to share that knowledge, which I think is why you kind of contacted me around with other runners, kind of best practice, because there's, and I know that's part of the purpose for this is to be sharing accurate information versus a lot of the stuff that's out there. So that was the other kind of element. We want to share that information with runners that are interested around performance and create an, almost a resource on the website where they can go on and learn more about what are the top guys doing? What are we doing with them? So that's kind of the, the rationale for it. I think it's a, a, a cracking idea. I really like the way you said you've, you know, you've taken that cycling approach and brought it into the, the trail and ultra world. And I think there is a, a crossover, particularly with trail and ultra and cycling. Now there's a lot of literature out there where trail and ultra coaches, certainly I do, but a lot of the studies have been done on cyclists first. Yep. And then we, we try and apply it to that, to that same world. Um, what I loved about the team was seeing familiar faces on there. So my old S and C coach, Rich Blairgrove was on there. Yep. My old physio, Chris Brammer's on there, who I yep. also work with Chris with biomechanics. So I was looking at it thinking, God, this makes sense to me. You know, I, I know these people. And if I haven't worked with them directly, I think Rebecca Dent's on there Rebecca as well. Rebecca Dent's a sports dietitian. Yep. We've got Dr. Josephine Perry, sports psychologist. And then Charlotte, who's, um, she's a sleep expert. And, you know, Charlotte's run CCC. Amazing. She does the research at UTMB on sleep. So she knows the demands of the events. Josie's worked with lots of ultra runners. She understands the demands. Rebecca works with, again with lots of ultra runners, mountaineers. So she understands the difference maybe between that and a road marathon or so that was kind of looking for people who would appreciate the sport I guess as well and had an understanding of that yeah and and I, I looked at that team and I thought I've either worked with them directly myself in my own athletics career or I still refer people to them now as as athletes and as a, as a coach but I also recognize a lot of the names like as, mm. as you say from the trail and ultra world and I think I looked at it and thought, this is a really strong team, not just the athletes, the support team. Yeah. And that, that's what I really liked about it. And as you quite rightly say, the, the purpose of 
of your team is not just about the performance of the athletes, it's to educate the wider audience as well on what you're doing, why you're doing that. And I'm a strong believer, and I think you're the same, Doug, is that a lot of people out there look at elites and they think, oh, they're a lot different and mm. we can't learn from them. But there's actually a lot you can learn from them that you can then apply to your own performance. And you've opened up a bit of a gateway there with the website to say, well, this is what we're looking at. This is why we're looking at it. And you could be accessing some of this as well. Yeah, and I think that people might be surprised at the volumes that some of the runners do. It's not masses, actually. I have other uh, athletes I work with who have you know full-time jobs and they're running more. They're maybe slightly more serious in their approach as well than some of their guys, which I work with. I and can vouch can, for that as well. Yeah, so <laughs> it's trying to you know raise their professionalism a little bit and, yeah, helping with that support so so it's an interesting one isn't it we have this debate a lot and I think um Tom Evans recently said something about um you know people say talent will only get you so far talent mm. still has to work hard and people who have talent the people who work hard will always just beat the talented uh, athletes and I think that's that's right in some respects is Talent does get people so far, but as, and I'm speaking from my own personal uh, perspective here, as I matured, as I got older and mm. in my late 20s and early 30s, I started to recognize that there's a lot more to this game than just, just training. And I think people mature and they start to look at things and being more professional mm. is then it's not just about the 1% that the likes of Dale, Dale Brailsford's bang on about. It's it's more than that. It's applying yourself in the right way to get the best out of yourself. And that's why sometimes the talent of the athletes at the top, they don't have to train maybe as much. Um, but some of them don't apply themselves as well as people think. <laughs> I'm sure you found the same as well. Absolutely. Not naming any names. And the other thing, though, I think that's quite important, which is maybe slightly different from some of the shorter distances, but even just like the marathon, the Grand Canaria, 46 kilometers, but the actual time for the winners was significantly longer than a road marathon. Yeah. The time for things to go wrong and how they manage that and the opportunities that also arise in a race like that. And once you go out to 100 miles, it's who slows the least. And what can we do to reduce their perception of effort in the second half of the race? And, you know, I was really happy to see that all my runners between the final checkpoint, the final timing point and the finish all improved their position. So at the end of the race, when it matters, they were moving faster than their competitors. They may still be slower than they were at the start of the race, but relative to those around them, they're faster. So it's trying to look at all those little opportunities and trying to minimize the negative impact throughout the race so they feel fresher or they feel better and perception of efforts lower when you get to the end so they can push that bit harder. Fascinating. That I think I'll be honest, that's what's drawn me into this world. So, uh, you know, we've met over the last year, Doug, but, but before that I was very much track road orientated and the last 18 months of my coaching journey has very much been focused on trails and, and ultra. And I think the reason for that is because I was actually chatting to one of your athletes, Chris, out in, in Grand Canary. Mm. I think he's on a similar journey to me. He's still an athlete, I'm a coach. Mm. But we were saying similar things in a sense of we love everything that's new we love learning new things and we feel like we're very experienced in the track and road world but almost this exploration of a new event is exciting and it really kind of gets my juices flowing at learning about all of this but ultimately what it comes down to is there's so many different dimensions to it and that's what I find fascinating yeah. whereas with a 5k obviously yes there's a lot of dimensions still into 5k but 
if you're fit, if you're firing all cylinders and you go and run a 5K, a lot of it's going to come down to physiology on mm. the on the day and, yeah. and who's physiologically the best. Whereas those 100 milers that I was watching at the weekend, <laughs> one of the big things that we're here to talk about was the heat was playing a massive factor in that. Yeah. And people's strategies around the heat, not just the fueling strategies, but what they've done before. What are they yeah. doing during? And I think that's what opens the door for people. Oh, I, I tend to call it... It just levels the playing field a little bit. People can do almost outperform themselves, and that's what I love about it. Yeah, well, I think before you started recording, you mentioned one runner was 90th at the first timing point and finished around 10th position in the race. Yeah. You know, it's not often you see that in a, a road marathon. You kind of have the lead pack, and then they're sort of there, and one by one, they sort of slow down and not able to stick with the pace. But, yeah, there's all those kind of opportunities which arise, and being in a position as a runner at some point in the race to take that opportunity. And I think it's changed in the last probably four or five years that we're now seeing people actively racing and making tactical decisions to put an effort in in some of these longer races. Whereas before, I think it was more, I'm just going to go and run the best time I think I can and the outcome will be what it is. But now we're seeing at the front end that people are making tactical decisions. They know that they might be slightly stronger than the competitor in a climb, so they put a real effort in to try and break them at those points and it's getting really interesting as the sport keeps developing and evolving that we're seeing these more depth of competition and just the the racing's getting more and more competitive and year after year course records are getting broken yeah and and I could see that visibly at the weekend you could see the depth particularly in the marathon you know you, you stood there and people are coming through and and you're looking down the field and thinking that's that's a high class athlete there who's mm. who's in 10th and they're struggling here you could see visibly they they were struggling and the the fields across the board you know there was there was shorter races longer distances so we we had everything from the 20k all the way up to 120k plus um so there was a lot of different races but the depth in all those races was strong it's, that's not like a a marathon where everybody's just standing on the same start line this is four or five different start lines across the week but they were still all all really strong so i think the depth is getting in getting stronger so so with all those things as kind of our set up for, for our conversation uh, the, one of the first things I said to you when I was texting you was by god Doug this is hot you know it, it kind of it taken me a little bit by surprise so James who I was out there with was originally meant to be running Grand Canaria and when we first looked at the forecast for Grand Canaria around that time of year we were expecting something around 20 I th- you know, quite far out. We thought if it gets up to high 20s, that's unusual. Somewhere around 20 is ballpark that time of year. It might creep up a little bit during the day. Um, when we were out there to give people a bit of a perspective here, I think we were on course and we seen 29.30 on, on our car and, and people were reporting that it was getting up into the 30s. Now, as British competitors, <laughs> that's very unusual for February time of year. Yeah. Um, so let, let's start by saying, um, w- were you aware that the temperatures were going to be that hot um, as a coach? And if so, what do you know about heat, which then influenced your decision around the, the, the type of training that they were going to do into the event? Yeah, so of, of course I knew it was going to be that hot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, again, like you, I was looking at historical weather. And yeah, I was. I did a race in southern Spain um, early last year. And I was kind of going through a bit of a heat protocol, which I'm sure we'll get in onto. And again, it was kind of the temperature had been forecast to be low 20s. And race day, it was roasting. And um, unfortunately, one of the British competitors uh, collapsed with heat stress, which oh some people... God. 
Um, and at the optimal time in an aid station, her body obviously knew that that was the time to stop. But I was there out there experimenting. I'd frozen bottles. I tried putting some gels in the freezer around the race pack, trying to work out how to keep myself cool in the race as well. And so I was aware that although it was saying it would be potentially low 20s, that it, there was a chance that it could be in the 30s, especially at the end when they're going to be at their most fatigued. So the course profile for most of the races and certainly the ones I had people running in was they would be starting climbing up and then descending down to sea level for the final fast riverbed section where there's no shade or very little shade and they're finishing typically sort of in the middle of the day early afternoon so they're going to be getting the worst of the heat as well and so I took that into consideration when we're coming up with a a strategy as to what we would do to try and prepare the runners and yeah two of them are training up in Scotland so we're now (laughs) the warmth of Loughborough but yeah for them it's probably a couple of degrees cooler and Meryl Cooper was one of the runners and if you follow her on Instagram or Strava you'll see that all of her long runs I think her last three long runs was in the snow I saw that because we're trying to get elevation and it's like where's the elevation it's snow up there and then we're like we're preparing for dry dusty conditions in snow and just to set the scene here a little bit you mentioned the riverbed which we had I wouldn't say the privilege of doing a temple and it was far from that Um, but I'll go on to that in a second but it was a dry riverbed there was nothing in it it was just stones and rocks and they they were obviously descending down this and Gemma and I did a session on it because I was trying to get Gemma better at technically um, navigating those sections uh, whether she does that race in the future we're just working a lot on the technical as- aspects of running more efficiently on that type of terrain at the minute and one thing that, that I took from it was I kind of ran out and I was finding my foot in a little bit and on the way back Gemma and I were significantly faster now that was a little bit because as you've highlighted here Doug it was a downhill section mm-hmm. so we climbed out and then we came down and we were following the course down this riverbed but the other thing was that um we were learning as we went and we were getting better and more efficient on that terrain. And it was quite clear that a lot of the Spaniards knew the course and they knew what was coming. Um, whereas Chris, an athlete who you coach, passed us with about two t- two gear to go. And uh, I think he said, this is deeply unpleasant. And I know he found it <laughs> tricky on that that type of terrain. So it wasn't just the the kind of heat they were struggling with. It was also that terrain underfoot as well. But you're, you're absolutely right. It just felt so exposed out there with it being dry sandy rocky there was no hiding from the sun and it did feel like even stood there it felt like extreme heat so with people like Merrill and, and Chris who are up in Scotland what sort of things could you do to help them prepare for that heat because you were aware of it before they went out yeah so there's a number of different elements so you have what we call heat acclimatization which is if you went out to that natural environment and trained in hot weather now that can be hard to do if you're working full time as, as they do and so you can't go and spend weeks and weeks out there. I know that some of the runners were. If you look at the people they yeah. were competing with, were spending weeks in southern Spain or actually on the island getting used to the heat. The other one, so you've got the acclimatization piece and then you've got the acclimation, which is something which you can do in kind of a, an artificial environment. So there's various elements linked to that. And that's the route we went down because you can do it, at, do it at home or do it at a gym and things like that. And there's a few components. One would be making use of saunas. So you just like a sauna protocol where you spend time in a mass time in a sauna or sitting in a hot bath as, an, as a second option and maybe more easy to implement for a lot of people if they yeah. have a bath at home. And thirdly, running ideally in a hotter, like in a treadmill in a gym, but even outside, but with more clothes on. So you might have seen certain brands sell heat suits, but you don't even need to have that, just a, you know, a warm jumper. 
And they've found in research that that was as effective as training in the hot environment. So there's various protocols that you can do. And with, I guess we want to get into kind of the specifics around that. So with Merrill, um, the research would kind of suggest that women need slightly longer to adapt to the heat than men. Yeah. And so with her and my female runners, unfortunately, they'll hate me for this. We'll have a longer preparation period. And it may be something like three weeks out, we start adding in after a run, spending 15 minutes in the sauna or 15 minutes in a hot bath, which is typically around 40 degrees is what most of the researchers looked at. And then we build that up gradually till they're doing around 40 minutes sat in a hot bath. And they found it for male athletes, if you spend 40 minutes sat in a hot bath, they did three days on, two days without it, another three days sat after a workout in a hot bath. They had a lot of the adaptations with women. It might need to have 12 of those types of sessions. Okay. Um, or you can use the sauna similar, from a similar perspective. So that was a combination of the two, either sitting in a hot bath normally after a run because your core temperature is already raised yeah. or in the sauna, but it wouldn't be continuous in the sauna, probably stepping out, monitoring heart rate. You may look a bit odd if you're trying to monitor your core temperature. <laughs> uh, I have done that with uh, within here, the monitor, seeing core temperature rise. But basically, it's about just trying to keep your core temperature elevated for an extended period at the end of a run. And that can lead to adaptations which are beneficial in the heat. Uh, with the running in warm clothes, it's again, maybe an hour easy run because you've got to also consider as a coach, but also for self-coached athletes that might be listening to this is that that's an additional stress. When you come out of a hot bath, if it's at the right temperature, it's you'll be sweating for quite a long time after and it is adding an additional stress. So you have to manage then the overall training load in conjunction with that. So there's a people at home probably sitting here thinking, well, this sounds quite nice, you know, hot baths and saunas and, yeah. you know, I could get into this. Um, but there's a reason we introduce it slowly and, or, you know, as you said, starting off in the bath, for example, at 15 minutes and gradually increasing that to 40. Because if you sit in a bath or in a sauna and you're looking at 40 degrees, it does become very uncomfortable quite quite quickly. It's not like yeah. your big bubble bath. It's, um, you know, I've, I've done it before where y- you are sweating in there. Yeah. And that that's the purpose of it, isn't it, to, yeah. to adjust. as And you don't really probably want to be drinking a lot of water because then you're going to be cooling your core temperature. Yeah. So again, and then even when you come out, not cooling yourself down instantly or a cold shower or anything, it's actually trying to just maintain more time at the elevated core temperatures. It's a gradual decrease and gradual rehydration afterwards. And it's interesting because when I once ran in Belgium and um, I, it was a bit of overheating, but it was something going on inside as well with, with my heart and that they were refusing to give me cold water despite it. I was gagging for it. I was like, oh. And they were saying, no, you need to bring that core temperature down naturally as well. Mm-hmm. It's a safer way of doing it. Don't shock the system right now by putting ice cold water in there. So there is that element to it as well. But as you say, you're getting those longer adaptations. So, so with this of... You know, we're we're very good as humans at cooling ourselves down. So people often say, you know, oh, I struggle in the heat, but relatively, we are all quite good at it naturally because we're trying to regulate that that core temperature, which is why we sweat to you know to get rid of that that heat. Um, but there are certain people, certain body types, and if depending on your background, that struggle more in the heat, or they certainly feel like they're doing it, can be a perception as well. So with this type of strategy. 
do we feel like, or does the certainly does the science? Let's go into a little bit of the science and the literature behind this. Does the evidence support this for for any type of runner? You know, we're talking about not just at the elite end. This is for everyday runners who are maybe saying, "Well, I'm going to go out and do Boston Marathon in a few weeks, and that could be hot as well." Is this the sort of thing I need to be thinking about? Will I get the same benefits? Yeah, so it's very individual in terms of the benefits that or the response that you get. So, but overall, it seems to be applicable. A lot of the research varies with who they're using so often you'll find people are kind of aged around 20 to 25 because it'll be a phd carrying out the research and the people around them are other phds which are available yeah for volunteering for the research but generally the research would suggest that it works for most people but it may take some people longer to get the adaptations not just gender specific but other elements may come into play as well around that so yeah that's one of the factors and it's unfortunately a bit of trial and error from that side of things as to what works with you. Yeah. Um, and there's not, as far as I'm aware, too much research looking at kind of multi, like combining various combinations, using a sauna one day, a hot bath the other, doing a hot run the next day. But from my experience, I think it's fine to have that mix as to what's most practical because you don't want to have the hassle of having to always drive to a gym, for example, to get to a sauna. You don't want to miss out running on the trails if every single run is going to be on a treadmill. And then you're going to be losing like maybe some of the skill and looking at the dry, dusty riverbed. And so there's things like that which you should factor in. But generally, I think for most runners, they'll see benefits of it. And one of the outcomes may be an increased sweat rate, which is something worth considering as well. So part of the reason for doing this is that it increases hemoglobin mass and it also increases your sweat rate because you become more efficient at cooling yourself, which then means you have to factor that into your hydration plans because if you all of a sudden find you're sweating a bit more, how much are you drinking? Are you compensating for that extra sweat rate? Yeah, and that, again, tends to link back to hydration and maybe even sodium loading. I'm a very salty sweater. Like, I know that I've got to be on top of that, so that might have a detrimental effect on me. So the the benefits I've tried to get from heat acclimatization would be then very different in this sense of, well, I'm better now in the heat, but I'm sweating more and I've not accounted for that. So yeah. I could then start cramping, for example. Yeah, you could get more dehydrated yeah. potentially, but you'd hope that you'd be more comfortable in the heat and dealing with it and have a slightly lower core temperature as you start the race and things. And and with this, so you also coached uh, numerous endurance athletes, not just in ultra, I believe you coached tri- triathletes as yeah, well. Yeah, a few triathletes, yeah. So, so with these, you know, longer events, so we're talking ultras triathlon like particularly the ironman distance they're going to be out for hours and hours and hours so when we say okay well we're going to you know creep up to sort of 40 minutes for for baths and saunas and an hour uh, potentially for these runs there might be people out there think well how is that going to work if i'm going to be out for you know 15 16 hours so what what is the, the the effect? What's actually happening? What's scientifically? You mentioned a couple of things there that that will help, but scientifically, what happens to us that's going to help us in that heat? Yeah. So you, the goal is to basically amass the time, and over time, I believe the core, your kind of just resting core temperature may be slightly lower, um, as part of that as your body's adapting to the heat. But it's becoming more efficient at cooling, so ultimately you maybe slightly increased sweat rate. As a result of the adaptations, you're just going to be dealing with the heat in a more effective way. You've got more hemoglobin mass. So um, I know some people have looked at research in terms of similar, in terms of looking at it from a, an altitude. So if you go up to of altitude, course. one of the things you have is a potentially an increase in hemoglobin mass if you respond to altitude. And it's a similar 
hype impact that this has on that um, from doing the uh, from doing the the sauna protocol, the hot baths, wearing warm clothes. So that's one of the kind of it's maybe slight performance enhancing. So even if it wasn't a hot day for racing, you may get a slight performance enhancement from doing that as a result of uh, that increase in basically your the amount of blood that's in your body essentially. So regardless, it's it's a it could be a benefit even if we get cool race temperatures because like you say, you've had that benefit of increased hemoglobin mass in, yep. in the body. So there are benefits aside to just being ready or being better mm. at cooling as well. Yeah, Perfect. So, and it, what is fascinating about these types of races as well is the, the, particularly the longer athletes. Um, so I think you had Hugh who was doing one of the longer events at the, the weekend. Yep. They set off in like horrific conditions at some point, and they were like in these thirty mile an hour winds and rain, and it was quite cool as well through the night. We noticed that when we were out there, um, and it wasn't until obviously the sunrise came up. Mm. So a lot of the longer athletes spent hours and hours in a lot of coo- cooler conditions as well. Um, but when that heat came up, it came up so intensely. It must have been quite a shock to go from those cool temperatures. And then I think it's worth saying as well, people are carrying things that I've always struggled with this that ultimately make you a little bit hotter. Yep. So they've got their race kit on and then they've obviously got a pack and mm. there's, there's weight to that pack. And then they've got mandatory kit, which is also stuffed in there. Uh, and that can all add to, to heat on, on the body yep. as well. Um, but you came up with an actual strategy, which I'd like to chat a little bit more about now is, well, what can we do in the race to, to also help us? Because we were stood there and we said, well, what would you do? And we were saying, oh, well, I'd stu- stuff ice in the back of my, my race pack. That's an advantage. And yeah. trying to come up with all these cool and crazy, you know, concepts. And you've mentioned a couple already, but did did the team have any strategies for in the race itself? Yeah, so this, if you have a support crew, it can be a lot easier to implement some of these and... Yeah, there's been various bits of research done looking at kind of pre-race cooling, which might be easier to implement, especially if you don't have a support crew. So they've looked at cooling. Um, there was one piece of research looking, at, I think, at 5K runners where they um, they cooled their head, but the rest of the body remained in kind of ambient temperatures, but the core body temperature was lower when they cooled their head and the 5K performance was improved than when they just had them sat, the whole body and their head sat at ambient temperatures. Um, so you can do things, especially around the head. The neck seems to be popular yeah. when you see people running, say, Western States, famously hot. They have ice bandanas. So we have worked in various hot races. So I had one runner racing in Thailand last December. We were using ice. So, yeah, in the race vest, around their neck, ice bandanas, under their hats, all those types of things. So we're trying to actively cool. And some of the other research has looked at, yeah, so within race cooling as well. And there's definitely benefits of re- it does work it reduces your core temperature i mean most people will have found that and generally the research seems to look at either kind of external to the body so ice or cooling on the head around the neck those types of places or ingesting things like ice slushies um i've seen that's become more popular hasn't it recently yeah. and there's been a lot uh felipe gana when he was doing his one hour uh world record on the track on the bike cyclist uh for team Ineos. There's a video out there and Dan Bingham, who was working with him, who was a previous record holder, I believe, following track cycling very closely. Mm. But they ate a lot of ice slushy before they got on the bike. Interesting. Like, I think he had over like over kilos of ice slushy to try wow. and get his, like, beforehand just to get his core temperature as low as possible. Because I think, don't get me, I'm not 100% sure in this, but I think having a warmer track, the air density is thinner, so they'll go faster. 
So they were yeah. trying to cool him before he got on the bike and then basically slight having it in a slightly warmer condition. So yeah, so you can ingestion of cold liquids um, or external ice around the neck and the head seem to be two of the most effective ways. And yeah, that's something we did. So Chris and Merrill had support at around the halfway point. Yeah. So I made sure like they had some ice available and trying to just get cold water over the heads, drinking some. Um, I've tried to bits and pieces, as I mentioned, just kind of self-experimentation with frozen bottles in the in the running vest on your front. Um, I didn't personally feel that that was very cooling. I didn't feel it very much, so I had it out and had it like when it was getting a bit softer, one of the soft flasks, put it around the back of my neck and one of the climbs and rubbed yeah. my forehead and things, and that felt as a sensation more cooling than having it on the front. But it probably was still having a small impact. I just couldn't necessarily, I couldn't feel it in my non-scientific research. <laughs> Interesting. This is this is fascinating for me. The, the first thing I'm going to pick away from it is that we said the research right at the start there, you highlighted that the one study was done on 5K runners. So we're saying, even if you're listening to this and you're not an ultra runner, you know, there are benefits if you're running 5Ks mm. in hot conditions to be keeping yourself cool. Yeah. And that goes all the way up to these ultra distances as well. It's still, it's still applicable. So there are some performance benefits there. Um, I'm glad you've said about the cooling strategies for 5K because that was the distance I eventually went to. My strategy was I used to put my cap in the freezer. So I used to wet my cap. I used to put it in the freezer. And then last minute, I'd take it out with me I'd try and keep it as cool as I possibly could. And then I'd wrap it also in a cold towel. And then when I got to the track, I'd, I'd put it on in the, in the hot conditions. I'd keep it on as long as I could do. Um, but for my 5K personal best, it was around 29, 30 degrees in, in Udegem in Belgium that night. And I specifically remember in that I left my vest off as long as I could. I, I kind of, uh, I actually went onto the track in just my shorts with a cold towel around my neck mm. to try and keep myself cool for as long yeah. as I possibly could. And that that still is my personal best to this day. So I was consciously thinking about these sort of things. I was fortunate that I'd been on camps with kind of Steve Ingham and Barry Fudge and people mm. like that in the past who'd given us these strategies and in some ways we were guinea pigs for them as you mentioned as, as students but I used to find that sort of stuff fascinating because I felt like I learned so, so much from it but for people here listening in there are things when we've got support it's a lot easier yeah. you're right in saying I was at Tunte with a, where there was support yeah. and you could see people were grabbing stuff off everybody but if people don't have support, there are also things that they can th be, be thinking about, particularly beforehand and keeping cool. Yeah, I guess you can almost do the, the pre-cooling will have a benefit. Although, as you said, those guys started, some of them started. So, yeah, Hugh was racing in the 84K, so they started quite early in the morning. And then the the one to six kilometer race, so the kind of the classic started at 11.59 Yeah, 11, I thought it was quite accurate. Uh, it can't start at midnight because I'm sure people have shown up the day before and the day after, not quite sure if it was midnight when. So 11.59pm, uh, they had really tough conditions. Mm. So pre-cooling there maybe won't be as advantageous. But um, yeah, there's still probably benefits for a lot of people if you're looking at that. And again, kind of touching on something you mentioned right at the start in that professional cycling model. If you look at Tour de France and hot stages, the cyclists are all wearing these kind of ice vests. Yeah beforehand just to try and keep themselves cool before they get on the bike especially on time trials when they're just going f you know very controlled managed but maximum effort that they can sustain for whatever the length of that time trial is so yeah there's various things that you can do and i've tried freezing well, i put gels in the freezer um and i had those so i had the vest so i was almost trying to replicate a nice vest so i had frozen bottles at the front one across the pocket the lower back and then nice uh, frozen gels at the, the at my sides there's uh just to try and keep, again, that sort of pre, 
uh, keep myself a bit cooler. And then as it melted, it was quite nice to be drinking the water because it was slowly, uh, slowly melting. So it was always quite cold what I was getting from those bottles. Um, so there's little things like that you could probably could still implement without having that support crew. That's really interesting on the freezing of, of the gels and drinks. I really like the freeze of the drinks. Again, um, even for, you know, if you're training in hotter climates, we've got a, a camp coming up in, in Portugal and we expect it to be warm and we will encourage people to freeze their drinks and take them to the track. And uh, it's something just nice about getting that that cold water into you uh, during during the session, but also just to tip it on the back of the neck. Yeah. That's always my favorite thing. It doesn't feel so nice at first, but then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm glad of that. And if you've got that in the race then if you've completely frozen a flask over the duration of the race it will obviously start to to melt a little bit but it, I imagine it st- stays cool for quite a long period of time in there and then there's the element of the gels and you're almost creating your own little ice slushies particularly if you're ingesting that as well and um, there are aqua gels I don't know if they would freeze it's probably something I will try now off the back of this tug so you've got my mind well, spinning. I can tell you that um, you know I was I had the Morton gels and they didn't really freeze when I tried them. And I'm aware that this uh, brand Never Second do have an ice gel. And the purpose of that has been designed that you do freeze it. But I believe they say take it out about five minutes before you want to use it. So it's more designed, again, I think, for Tour de France cyclists with their support crews with the Swanies and the cars with freezers in it. But yeah. we, we did try that. We did try using that in Thailand with Robert. So he had a support crew there. And nice. we tried using these ice gels there just to try and get something cold. So they had a cool box. Yep. take it out when you came to aid station. So we only used it in the aid stations there, but it's having something cold, which is still simple to digest. Um, so yeah, we've been playing around with different things. <laughs> and I think this is it. a lot of elite sport is this people think it's this, this, there is a scientific approach with course there is, but there's a lot of trial and error that goes on as well with people. And often it's finding out what works for you going back to your point right at the start. It's very individual. Everything is very individual in this spot. This is what's so good about it. And it makes you unique. And we are also so unique. And sometimes people I've read recently that these gel companies and nutritional companies are designing things that have like a mint taste to them, for example, mm. or or a lemon taste. I had a mint chew when I was out there and that was quite refreshing. And I think that comes down to perception as well. And I know a lot of Alex Hutchinson's done a lot of work on this around the effect of placebo is often mm. the most powerful effect of anything. Yeah, I mean, they've done research with, I think, just like a simple mouthwash. Yes. And if you swirl it and then spit it out, but just the people's perception is in that they're cooler with the mental from that. I guess one thing around anything that's influencing perception of temperature is it's not actually cooling the body. So it's just something you need to be mindful of because then someone may push too hard if they believe if they're feeling better than they actually are in reality. But yeah, I've run with um like the fisherman friends. So oh, like really yeah, strong yeah. mental yeah. trying to just use that and breathing through the nose and it does kind of feel like cool when it's it's a strange sensation. But yeah, I've tried all these types of little things or hot races. But yeah, that's the one thing I say with perception is just being mindful that you're not actively cooling. Um, the other thing which might be, I'm sure it's available on YouTube or somewhere, is uh, if you look at last year's Trail and Mountain Running World Championships and Zach Miller. Yeah. It, they had, it was in Innsbruck. They started off uh, running through the mountains and had a long descent into the valley floor and it just got hotter and hotter. And at one aid station, um, Zach just got there and he was just chucking water over himself, literally just like two hands, like water all over him, just trying to get himself cool. It can be as simple as that. He performed well after that. Yeah. And there's other stories about people in ultramarathons just lying down in a river 
<laughs> just trying to get themselves yeah, cool. Just trying to get the core temperature down a little bit and then carrying on. So just even, you know, water that isn't particularly chilled will just help cool the body down. A um, couple of things to take from that. We've seen Zach at the weekend and, and my partner Gemma said to him as he cut across the dam, he wasn't having a particularly good good race, Zach. I think he'd be first to admit that. Um, but back to your point, Doug, he just completely soaked himself at that aid station. I mean, we watched him go in and he looked relatively dry. We watched him come out and he was absolutely drenched. So I think he did something similar. But Gemma made the comment to him and said, come on, Zach, you're looking good. And he turned to him and said, really? <laughs> she was a bit of a fangirl for Zach Miller. But yeah, he was he was having a tough day. And then and then back to the points around, you know, you said about trialing these different things and, and finding what works for you. I think the perception thing is, is really important to highlight here because one thing that stands out for me was... The, the Callum Hawkins incident and the Gold Coast yep. where he was using ice hats and his team had planned for this and and Barry Fudge tells the story and it you know we shouldn't laugh about this story because it was it was very dangerous and it was very upsetting to watch and um and I had money on Callum winning as well which <laughs> kind of kick, kicked me in the teeth a little bit um but Barry said the problem that day was we we gave a strategy to somebody where his perception was that he was still cool and to add fire to the to to the already the, these enlightened flames was that Callum is also a doubly hard bastard who will just keep running through anything. So he's just telling himself, "Yeah, I feel fine," and he's pushing and pushing and pushing, and then eventually we we saw what happened. Yeah. You know, collapsing on the side of the road. So I think it is a really good point to note there around just be careful if your your perception is telling you you're cool. Similar with your pacing strategy as well, linked to that. Yeah, because obviously um, other things we. Maybe not touched on as much, but yeah, pacing. So not going off too hard. If it's hotter, you probably have to be mindful of adjusting how fast you can run because if it's hotter, your heart rate's going to be higher because it's trying to keep you cool. Yeah. And then hydration becomes very important as well. So having a good hydration plan will help keep your core temperature lower because and your heart rate will be lower because you're not getting dehydrated. So as you become dehydrated, your heart rate will drift up, your core temperature will be drifting up. And so, yeah, managing pace and hydration will be two key components, especially when it's hot. So if you've been training in training in winter in the UK and then going out to a hot climate like that, it's something to be really mindful of around how are you going to adjust to that. And one of the things I did with, uh, with the guys uh, before they headed out was actually trying to get them to get used to drinking maybe a little bit more. So working with Rebecca, the dietitian, was yeah. like actually get comfortable drinking more than you need on this run because when you get out to the race, if you're putting in, if you're used to drinking 500 mil an hour and all of a sudden you're drinking 650, 700 mil an hour, can your stomach cope with that extra volume that's going in? Yeah, because you might even need more than that when you get out there as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really important point to make around that hydration. Some people, uh, you know, James will be first to admit who I coach, he's, he's guilty of this way. He's like, less less the better less i have to carry i'm lighter those sort of things but we've we've both already said you know we've got to account for chamonix this year when he does occ that it can be hot it was quite hot this year we started off with snow at the start of the week which was mad for the mcc uh, and then by the time we got to thursday it was it was roasting yeah. so you've got to be mindful of that and again people and you're going so to I was gonna say something i like flag and rebecca will flag is you know, a simple thing you could do a sweat test where you know you you run um wear yourself naked before you run then get dressed uh, <laughs> yeah don't go out, don't go out. Uh, <laughs> do your run then and you can drink and stuff you just need to record the weight of what you've drunk and then back uh, a towel yourself down as well so you're removing the sweat and weigh yourself 
say you're running an hour around race intensity, depending on the temperature will have an impact, but it'll give you an idea. But coming back to worrying about carrying the extra weight, you're probably going to be sweating that out anyway. Yeah. So if you're worrying about carrying one liter instead of 500 mil, you're probably going to lose half a kilogram, 500 mil of sweat anyway. So that's how I try and convince the guys that the performance detriment from dehydrated is going to be much slower than the extra 500 mil that they're going to carry with them. Yeah, and I think it's always better to have a little bit more because if you've not got it, you've not got it. Yeah. Like if you don't use it, I'm not bothered about that. If you don't use it, if you don't feel like you need it, if you finish with a little bit of water, I'm not bothered that you've got an extra 250 mil yeah. that you've carried around with you. But if you're really struggling for something, then, you know, it, and you're already dehydrated, there's that, that saying, if, if you think you're dehydrated, you're well dehydrated. At that point, there's going to be negative then performance consequences as a result of that. Yeah, I think that the hydration thing is, is a big thing for people. We we do have a link with Precision Hydration. I find their website's really good yeah. for educational resources on there. And there's things you can put in as well and calculators and things. And they yeah, do they have, have a really a sweat, good sweat test. They've got a sweat test calculator on there and stuff. Yeah. And I, and I find that really useful. And again, whether you then purchase from them or another company, you know, I think there's a lot of great companies out there. But I do believe we, we've got a relationship with Precision because I believe similar to ourselves, our websites, they provide an education for people as well. Mm -hmm. So even if you just want to go and have a look at those resources, I do recommend people do that. T touching on that and link back to pacing then, Doug, because you have touched on a subject that I'm very passionate about. Because I still watch those races at the weekend and I still do believe that people go off too hard. Um, and I believe if you can get that pacing right, there's a lot of places there up for grabs. Um, but there are people who stand on a start line. I'm going to take a marathon here as an example. So I'm going to go slightly away from Trail and Ultra. London Marathon, I think it was either 2018, 2019. can't remember off the top of my head, where it was a really hot year. And I just got into the coaching world uh, online at that point. And I was coaching a few athletes and I'd said to them, look, it's it's really hot. It's forecast 25 in, in, in April in London. That's crazy. It's probably going to feel hotter in, in the actual race because you're going to get reflection off the tarmac, the buildings, all those things to be considered. And we need to change strategy. And people were coming back saying, well, I'm in shape to run a personal best. I can't change my strategy now. <laughs> And getting that through to someone is is really hard. Um, but I did go on to coach an athlete who I wasn't coached at the time. And, and he said to me that his best performance at London came on the hot year because he adapted his strategy. So he ran four minutes slower than his personal best. He ran a 303 marathon. His PB was 259. Um, but it was his highest place finish yeah. at the London Marathon still because he was willing to adjust. But what, do, let's have a little bit of a scientific explanation to for people so they understand why they need to slow down because just hearing it from a coach saying slow down don't go too fast what's happening there why do they need to back off a little bit well yeah and i think you mentioned the heat uh trans grand canary and then comparing it to last year and if you look at some of the winning times especially in the marathon which was when we were messaging quite a lot and you were saying it was sweltering yeah the same runner won both years but he was a little bit slower this year and it was interesting to see. Now, was that the heat? They always changed the course slightly. I think they had a slightly different start, so it didn't bunch up quite as much. So they maybe ran a little bit further. But overall, the time seemed to be a little bit slower yes. on that race day, which was, I think, the hottest day of the of the weekend. So it's interesting seeing that. But ultimately, I think when the big thing that you probably notice is a higher heart rate for the pace that you're running at. So if you monitor your heart rate, you're running in hot conditions, 
So I have a couple of athletes in Dubai. We can't really train outside, but if I, I it can be as dramatic for them if they do an outdoor run, when they're running, zone one pace, they could be in heart rate zone three or heart rate zone four in the summer. Wow. So we can't use heart rate as a guide if we're trying to do some training. If we say, right, we want to go out and keep it easy, just use RPE or just just, just run slowly, yeah. basically, because the heat. And that's part of the impact because it's the body's trying to cool you. It's trying to move the blood around the body, get the sweat going. And that's one of the biggest things that we can see easily in terms of the, the feeling of that. Also then linked with that is your core temperatures rising. You're going to be sweating more trying to cool yourself, which means then... If you start getting dehydrated because you're losing fluid through sweat, you're losing sodium through sweat, then those all these factors come into play and ultimately you will slow down. Yes. So from a pacing perspective, you may have to go a little bit slower to be running at the same relative intensity that you're used to at c- in cooler conditions. Yeah. And I guess one of the things like talking about if they go off too fast and things, you one could argue that do you push hard at the start when it was cold because you're not... I'm not saying that's the right thing yeah, to do, but yeah. it's like you can almost go, well, when's it going to be cooler? When it's going to be warmer? And that's one of the things that individuals, some people like running in the heat, some yes. people don't like running in the heat. Yeah. And when we're doing 100-mile races, thinking something like UTMB, do you tactically say, right, we're going to push a little bit harder through the night? Or yeah. do you not? Or do you know? So there's all these kind of little things you have to kind of work with the, end, the athlete and the individual to work out when's, when one should. But yeah, from a purely kind of physiology perspective, you're... You're going to be basically hotter core temperature. You're going to have a higher heart rate for your same running speed. Um, and then coming back to kind of the Alex Hutchinson and sort of psychology piece, your perception of effort will be higher mm. for that same speed because yeah. you're feeling less comfortable. Yeah, I, I read a study quite recently around that, around the perception of effort in hotter climates, and it was significantly higher. Yeah. Um, people just feeling like they are working a lot harder, um, but they're at that same intensity level. And I think if we just strip it back to basics here, if we if we just view that heart as, as the muscle, the, that muscle is working so hard to regulate our core temperature mm-hmm. that that's why it's higher, as, as well as a lot of other things going on inside the body. But just simply, it's having to work harder an even slower pace than it's used to, but it's because the intensity level is up because of the, the environmental conditions you get. The really interesting point about, you know, again, linking it back to the longer races, you see a, a variety of conditions as we did at the weekend. And you, again, you're right, Doug, because the Courtney DeWalter's time in the ladies race was significantly down on last year as well. I think it was close to an hour behind what she finished in last year because I think the conditions on the whole, she even said it in her interview after, were, were quite mm. tough during the day and in, in the night. But they did start in really cold conditions. Yeah. So you do have to think strategically about that. They almost that. had the reverse. They had like really tough, I'm not going to say winter conditions, yeah. but there were strong winds and it was cold through the night, which wasn't favourable. And then by the time they are finishing, they had the the heat. So they had a massive swing this year, whereas last year there was a, a smaller change from night to day in terms of temperature and just the general conditions. But yeah, when, when people stand on that, back to that London example, I think I looked the start, temperature was around 19, 20 at that time of the day. And that was when they were going off on the gun. By the time you're through in the masses and you've been stood there for an hour waiting to get through, it's probably more like 22, 23. At that point, you've got to say, right, we've got to change tact here. Because as online coaches, and I always say this about training sessions, when we when we plan a session and if we've put pace prescriptions in there, I'm more of an RPE fan personally, but now and again, I do put pace prescriptions in there. Um, I plan that 
on the perfect day. You know, I'm sat in the office thinking, right, if I get perfect conditions, but I do give a pace range, but it's amazing how many runners or how many athletes will go to the top end of that pace range first and not the bottom end. I'm guessing it's similar from your end. Oh, yeah, the range, yeah. It's always at the top end of the zones or whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> of course it is. Uh, and yet that zone is often so much bigger than they think it is, so you could be getting away with a little, a little bit. But back to that point, if, if we give a pacing strategy on the day of the race, some people aren't, aren't prepared to go off that slow. I always say to, to the athletes I work with, if you're not prepared to go off that slow, what well, I'm setting you there, you know, I'm going to take a number. I, I want you to go off at eight minute miling, which is about three and a half hours for the marathon. And uh, I'd like you to try and, you know, sustain that or potentially pick up, but let's just be a little bit safe. And I say, oh, I can't, I can't go off that slow. My, my saying back to them is always, well, make sure at the end that we don't see anything above eight minute miling. Because if you're not prepared to go off that slow, you shouldn't be able to be prepared to finish a lot slower than that. But what you do see is the drop off is so much more significant. You know, the people who are steady away tend to be able to maintain that pace. People who've gone off too fast, in this example, seven thirty minute miling, well, we usually see them dropping like nine thirties in the end. And it's a real kind of drop off because they've completely bonked by that point. Yeah. Yeah. So lots to take away. I mean, people are going to come off the back of this podcast thinking, well, this is great. I've got saunas to do. I've got hot baths to do. Uh, you know, I can try out all these fueling strategies as well. These sound, sound quite good. Um, but to, to leave people with, with a few top tips to maybe think about, um, and we'll bounce off each other uh, here, Doug. So if you were to give people a top tip and say, right, people have got a race coming up uh, in the summer. They know right now, long-term plan that it is coming up in the summer and they want to be a little bit more prepared for that. Um, what would be one of your top tips to give them to start thinking about now? Well, I'm, just because you mentioned it earlier about the training camp, I'm just going to say like one of the things you could as well, like the top tips or anything, you could implement that a little bit before a training camp in a hot environment as well because then you may get more benefit of being on the camp. So it's something not just from a racing perspective, but if you're doing a training camp in, camp in a hot environment, something you could do. So I would say... A couple of weeks out, I would look at implementing a heat protocol, heat mitigation strategy. So that could be looking at using the hot baths, the saunas, or training, ideally in a kind of warmer environment, so it may be on a treadmill in warm clothing. And kind of what we said, um, work up to around 40 minutes is what most of the research is saying. So spending that amount of time sat in a hot bath after a run, and then slowly rehydrate and bring the core temperature down following that. And how often were your athletes doing that, Doug, in, in a weekly period? So it doesn't have to be continuous. It doesn't have to be every single day. Um, so for female athletes, we'd be typically doing, trying to get around 12 sessions in. So it might be kind of 15, 20 building up. So it might be over, say, four weeks. Yep. And doing maybe three days in a row, one day out. Okay. Of that. Um with the male athletes, typically we'd be looking for around six to nine sessions of that kind of 40-minute duration in the hot bath. And then again, maybe three or four sessions prior to that where we go kind of 15, 20, 25, we're sort of building up to that duration. But again, yeah, it yeah. can be three days on, one day out. That's what some of the research has shown. Or, you know, just as and when it, it suits um, like their schedule because even four or five, well, I think five sessions have been shown to be beneficial. So minimum of five sessions can can have some form of benefit. Yeah. Brill. Well, my my go-to is going to be, again, I was going to say something similar about the training camp option, if you've got that option. But linked to that, if you're racing in the summer, 
quite often we do have spells or periods of time, even here in the UK, it gets quite hot. And naturally what the athletes do say, well, it's hot, I don't, I don't think I should go out today. <laughs> and I say to them, well, actually, this is a really good opportunity to go out and, and get some training. However, what we are going to do is we're going to knock your pace back a little bit. And then, you know, it comes up, but I don't want to go slower. Can I not just train when it's going to be cooler? But again, just getting used to those, those, uh, those that environmental conditions. We do get it here in the UK. We definitely do. Particularly, you know, I find a lot of people who target, say, a Berlin Marathon end of August, they have to train through a lot of hot weather uh, in here in the UK. But it can be beneficial because Berlin can can get hot too. So my top tip would be don't be afraid to, to train in the heat, whether it's on a camp or here in the UK. But if you're going to do that, make some considerations around your pacing also make some considerations around your fueling, which you highlight is a real important factor, both during if, you, if you're going long, but also then post um, run. A lot of people don't carry water bottles around with them and you know don't hydrate during the day. So just make sure that if you're sweating more, you are then replacing that, that fluid. And that would be a perfect opportunity, one of those runs to do your sweat test that we talked about, working out your yeah. fluid loss in that, in that session in those environments. If you've only been training in the cool, and you know you're losing one litre per hour at that intensity, it could be as much as 1.5, even more litres per hour if you're then doing it in the hot. So that'd be a good opportunity to get an extra benefit from that hot training session. I was really surprised when we first did it with with Steve over in Portugal and um, we, we weighed ourselves beforehand. Thankfully, we didn't have to do it naked because we were all in the same room, um, but we were in the same kit and uh, and we came back and we just did a you know, general sweat test and we were doing it throughout the, the training camp. But this particular run, I was really surprised that I'd lost almost two kilos on a, on a run. I sweat a lot and I'm a very salty sweater. That was a light bulb moment for me in, in my running. Oh my God, am I really losing this, this amount? I had to then think about that. And I, I'd still say I'm still playing around with it to this day because... As I go longer, I'm figuring out, oh God, I need to take on a lot more than other people. Mm. Um, and it can can be challenging. So you're right, Doug, if you can practice that that strategy or certainly give yourself a, a sweat test, then by all means, take advantage of that. Just don't go out running naked. That's what we're saying. Absolutely, but- yeah. And it's just so you don't have the weight of the sweat in your clothes. That's the reason. It's nothing... Uh- perverted from the cultures yeah because the the, the obviously the clothes are lighter at the start and yeah. they're heavier heavier at the end brilliant and then, and then finally i'm just going to give a bit of a, a mention to um you know some of our uh coaches and, and partners people who we work with so physiologists as well going in the lab and doing some testing around that can be helpful if you've got access to that or if you want to pay for that uh that people do sweat testing in the lab and it's very beneficial here at Loughborough I know they, they do that Dave who's one of our coaches and you love us coaching he does that sort of thing over at Birmingham and again it's not just for the elites it's for for anybody who's looking to find out a little bit more about that if they feel like they that could help you with your performance and why not explore that it could could actually be making a, a big difference yeah, we use the lab at Loughborough. Um, they've got the kind of the chamber there where you can set it up to simulate the altitude, the humidity, the temperature of key races. So I've got five of the guys coming next month and we're going to be simulating UTMB, CCC type conditions for them to work out the sweat rates in that environment. So yeah, there's lots of opportunities like that which can be useful um, for my, yeah, just managing your sweat. But as you say, it doesn't need to be in the lab even in a treadmill in a gym, if you know it's going to be a bit warmer, it'll give you some sort of indication. And you could even compare 10 degrees outdoors versus 20 degrees in the gym and then going right up and racing in 25, kind of how's that looking in terms of the trend of the sweat loss. Yeah. 
just be careful who you do it around because I like sweat crazily on a treadmill or on a bike and people are looking at me like, my God, that's repulsive. Um, and make sure you have a towel. Don't forget your gym towel for that one. Excellent. We've covered loads there, Doug. Thank you for your time. That's been fascinating. I feel like um, I've learned a lot from from that conversation. Hopefully people tuning in, listening and, and watching on YouTube have learned a lot. There's a lot to take away. I'm going to pop quite a few links in the show notes, if that's okay with you. Um, I'll do the one to your original research study yep. and that was done at, at Sterling. Then I'm also going to put a link there to the latest article around how you implemented this, this heat strategy. I believe that's up now on the website. Yeah, we've got a couple of articles there around uh, heat mitigation, the impact of heat, heat mitigation. We'll have another couple coming out in the next few weeks around hydration and raw sodium as well. So we've got, um, yeah, there'll be more content coming out in the coming weeks. Perfect. And if people want to get in touch with you, Doug, about coaching, where can they find you? Um, you want me to plug a TMR? That's uh, absolute, that absolutely fine. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a TMR Coaching. Um, so we're on Instagram or tmrcoaching.com and be able to reach out to me there and yeah if they're interested in trail ultra they've also got cycling and uh, triathlon coaches working with me perfect so tmr coaching for doug obviously we are new levels coaching but more than happy to promote other coaching companies as long as we believe in them and as you know i've had doug on the podcast massively believe in what he does as a coach and the, and the work they're doing and they're doing some fascinating work with the elite trail team so do please keep an eye on that over the course of the year we wish them all luck and as always we wish you luck if you're racing enjoy your training enjoy your racing good luck to all those going out to tokyo this weekend i know it's a very big weekend for a lot of marathon runners We'll be keeping an eye on the tracker. Another weekend spent watching dots and uh, watching <laughs> results. Thanks again, Doug, and thanks Thank everyone you. for joining us. Cheers, guys.